welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. In this episode, we are talking about chapter five of The Amber Spyglass, The Adamant Tower. have to say first of all sorry if I actually think I sound all right now but if I go croaky at any point I'm sorry I've got a very sore throat so I'll do that like sexy Phoebe voice from Friends where she gets a cold (laughs) (laughs) my stickers yes exactly exactly how are you I'm good I am very tired but I'm good I feel like I'm still just about recovering from Comic-Con. Faye was an absolute lifesaver. She helped me out at Comic-Con at the weekend. As we're recording, it is Tuesday. So I had yesterday to have a big old lie-in and today I'm kind of back on it. Yeah, we met loads of lovely people. A few of you that are listening might have met us at Comic-Con and picked up a sticker, which is very exciting. So if that's how you found us, hello, and it was lovely to meet you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I had so much fun. I worked in retail like when I was a teenager and I fucking hated it but I fucking loved I loved helping you out Rich if you need an actual salesperson that handles all I handled all the money then I would be happy to do that yes yeah Faye was great she did all of the like cash register stuff which is very good because that means that I could package up all the stuff and we had like a proper little team going on it was really good uh, yeah, hopefully, like, helping little old me out feels a lot less soulless than working for a, a major chain or corporation. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, like, the reason why I hated retail was because of, like, the management and how fucking shitty, like, they treat their workers, like, most companies treat their retail workers. And you weren't like that, Rich. <laughs> you let me go to the toilet whenever I wanted. <laughs> I did. And uh, I paid you in food, so I guess it makes you an unpaid intern, but... (laughs) It's fine. I was going to do the burbanum noise, but my throat won't allow it. Maybe when I get to do my next con and I have more of an idea of what the actual vibe is, I can work out how much money I can actually pay the people that help me. (laughs) I mean, I I didn't want money. I just thought it was just fun to be there and I didn't... It wasn't like I had it. Well, I was like, I didn't have any other plans. I specifically kept that weekend free, but like, it was fun. I loved seeing everyone's cosplays and stuff. I always think this, like, I'm sure Comic-Con is great to like walk around and like see all the stands and stuff, but we don't really get to do that because we're trapped behind a table. But that's what's so lovely about everybody that does all like the cool cosplays and stuff because it's like they come to you (laughs) so you got to see loads of great people in some really awesome outfits walking around highlights of the day include uh let's think the couple that were dressed as sophie and howl from howl's moving castle and he was howl when he's like a majority of the way transformed into a bird monster and so he was just covered head to toe in black feathers and had these massive wings that was pretty wild <laughs> yeah 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 i remember tiny baby mario and luigi 
That oh my god, so they were so cute. such like new babies. New babies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really cute. There were so many Lokis, so many amazing Lokis because Tom Hiddleston was there. Lots of Scooby Doo. So much Scooby Doo. Love to see that. Loads of Scooby Gangs. Mm, yeah. Loads of Scooby Gangs. Lots of Harley Quinns in varying levels. And I really appreciated all the Birds of Prey Harley Quinns that I was seeing. Like the, those dungarees are great. And that like clear coat with the tassel sleeves. Oh, love it. Incredible. Loved it. Loved that. You were obsessed with the guy that I don't even know what the reference was. He was like wandering around with like a giant inflatable duck <laughs> that it made it look like he was walking on. But I think it was just the way the duck was moving. He was like carrying like a, a prop gun and it looked like he was riding a giant duck no idea what the reference is probably a video game that I've never played but the comedic timing of it just got you it was perfect it was hilarious and you wore the outfit birthdays and I just really appreciated it like the commitment to the cause it was great (laughs) and I was telling Sarah about it yesterday the moment when a guy dressed as a Negan from The Walking Dead oh my god was wandering around and someone asked for a photo with him he was like standing near our booth and someone was like oh can I get a photo with you and if you've watched The Walking Dead you'll know it's a reference if like Faye you haven't it'll take you by surprise his response to can I have a photo with you is like yeah absolutely standing up or on your knees (laughs) and Faye just lost her shit I lost my entire shit because I was like it was like a rare quiet moment it was right towards the end of the day wasn't it and I was like staring into space and just like chilling and then I just heard this do you want it by my side or on your knees and I was like (gasps) and I just literally lost my entire shit and I was like oh my fucking god but like the thing is right he was fully aware of what you were saying as well like it was a reference to the show but he also knew how it sounded and it would have been extra creepy if it hadn't been taken very well by everyone around so it was just funny I just lost it for like a full like five ten minutes I just could not stop laughing it just shook me to the core like (laughs) So now every time Faye ever wants to have a photo taken, <laughs> like take a selfie or do anything, I'm always going to be like, sure, how do you want it? By my side or on your knees? <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Oh God, it was so good. Oh, and also like Rich, is, we know this already, but Rich is TikTok famous. People kept coming up to her being like, I've seen you on TikTok. Somebody asked for a photo with her. It was, a, it was, I loved it. It was a lot. It was great. It was amazing. But now, yeah, if anybody else ever asked for a photo with you, Rich, you have to say, Do you want it by my side or on your knees? But they won't know what the reference is. So it'll just be creepy. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, it was an so great. Excellent weekend mm-hmm. had by all. You will have done a shop update when this episode goes out. There might not be much left, but you will have done one. As of when this episode comes out last Friday or the Friday before, the 28th of October is when I will have last updated my shop and I'm aiming to do another one towards the end of November so that I can get stuff posted in the run-up to the holidays. So keep your eyes peeled for that if you want something cute that I made with my hands. (laughs) Yes. There we go. There we go. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to mention was just before Comic-Con, we turned two. The little podcast turned yeah. two. Happy anniversary! Oh, yeah. Like, can you believe we're two? I can't at all. And a massive part of that is the fact that it feels like we're still a little bitty baby podcast, which we are, because two's not that long to have been doing it. But it also feels like we started this podcast literally years well it is years multiple years but it feels like we started this like 10 years ago just because when we first started this podcast there wasn't even the sniff of a pandemic 
Um, we didn't really even start hearing about stuff until like December and January to do with pandemic stuff. And then a majority of this podcast has been recorded during a lockdown. And so it just feels like so many moons ago that I was hopping on the bus and we both moved house since that I was like hopping on the bus to come to the other side of Peckham to sit in your dining room and chat about these books. It feels like so long ago. It really fucking does like so much. I suppose speaking for myself in my life has changed since this podcast, but also just like the things that we've been able to do and the things that we've learned how to do and the things that we've taught ourselves how to do is incredible like we should pat ourselves on the back a bit more we've done a lot you know it's made me completely change what I thought my career goals were it's just been such a fucking ridiculously amazing experience and the fact that people listen to us still blows my entire mind I remember being like oh my god a hundred people have listened to the first episode that's such a massive number and now we're on like I can't even think how many like total episode plays we keep hitting these milestones and it's like ah so exciting (laughs) do you know it is it's so exciting and it's so great and I thank you to everyone that listens to us and I'm still shocked that we you know interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda and Daphne Keane and Simone Kirby and Jane Tranter and Russell Dodgson and ev- everyone that we've spoken to. And BAFTA award-winning <gasps> Caroline McCall, who just recently won a BAFTA. So congrats, Caroline. Congrats, Caroline. Yes, honestly, all the people that we've spoken to have been so lovely and it's just, I just can't get over it. It's just great. It's one of the great joys of my life. Also, you know, one of the reasons why we've been able to grow so much and have this community is because of our patrons. So thank you so much to our Patreon community. We love you folks so much. You really brighten up our days when we look in the Discord and see you all chatting. It's just amazing. And also, I know we say this all the time, we promise to do more stuff on Patreon because I've got so much stuff in my brain, but we've been so busy that we haven't been able to. And we still need to like arrange the last watch along and maybe do a belated Halloween one and all that. Don't worry. We'll 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 get to it. We'll get to it. Rach is she's done with her con now. She she's not as busy. Yeah. I think hopefully life will be a little bit less hectic now. But yeah, I'm so excited for all the all the Patreon stuff that we're hopefully gonna do. I have so many ideas and then we just need to sort our schedules out. And just the fact that people are happy to help support us doing this podcast it's meant that we've been able to upgrade our equipment we've now got enough that I can upgrade my setup which is very exciting and it hopefully should support some potentially exciting stuff that we might be able to do in the future that we are working on but we can't say anything about yet yeah it's honestly means the world to us and yeah if you'd have said when we first started recording this podcast oh in two years we'll have like this beautiful little discord community of people that like chat to us on a daily basis which is so nice all about the books and about everything related to it and we have this community on patreon that are happy to help support keep this podcast running is so exciting (laughs) when we first started we were like oh I bet nobody but our friends listen to this. Our friends are the ones that don't listen to it. <laughs> our friends don't even fucking listen. <laughs> Except for Ellie. Thank you, Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Oh, hi, Ellie. She yes, always yes. tells me she's been listening. <laughs> oh, Ellie, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, our friends don't listen. Our friends have like tried it and like, no. So you know what? Thanks to everybody else, not our friends. 
To be fair, there's a reason that we host this podcast with each other and it's that we're the only ones out of our friendship group that have actually read the books and care enough to record a podcast about it or listen to a podcast about it. So Very, very true. Another exciting thing that happened, which is off the back of us being a podcast that people apparently listen to, is that uh, Scholastic UK got in touch. If you follow us on Instagram, you might have seen like last year they sent us some like Northern Lights themed face masks and they asked us if we wanted to receive some freebies and obviously we said yes i think that means we're hashtag influence yeah, right <laughs> hashtag gifted but it was the release date of the uh, illustrated version of the subtle knife a couple of weeks ago well when this comes out it'll be a couple of weeks ago and they sent us a copy of that and also like a framed illustration. I need to check who that's by. Let me just do that. And then I'm going to share Rach live on the pod because she hasn't seen either. Yeah, I've not seen them yet. They're at Faye's house. <laughs> okay, so it is a special framed print for our ra- uh, their ranking editions of His Star Materials. So it's just the front covers of like newer versions of the books. So I will delve in right now and show you. This is so exciting. We're going to have to have like an arm wrestle or something to decide who gets the book and who gets the print. Or we're just going to have to move in together. (laughs) I mean, let's do it. This is the book and you're going to, we'll obviously post on social media, but Rach, you're going to love the front cover. Look who it is. Oh, it's Balloon Dad. Oh, God. Oh, it's really gorgeous colours. Yeah, it's really pretty. I have It's like, like a really like sunset-y purples and reds, yeah. right? I haven't really like looked. Oh, there's some like little northern like, ah. Oh. I didn't know that it had a little letter from the person who is called Beck, who has been really nice to us. Thank so, you, Beck. Thank you, Beck. <laughs> uh, they said, Faye and Rich, hope you enjoy the Subtle Knife illustration, uh, illustrated edition and a little something else to celebrate the ranking editions. Back. Thanks, Beck. Okay, and then here is the print. It's interesting, this, because the Mrs. Coulter that they've illustrated looks a bit like Jodie Comer. It's very realistic. Ooh. So like interesting. The Amber Spyglass, Coulter and the Monkey for Subtle Knife and then Lyra for, and Pan for um, Northern Lights. Ooh. It's very interesting, very like photorealistic illustrations. I mean, Coulter and Azrael, hot. I mean, we knew that anyway, right? Uh, we knew that anyway, yeah. <laughs> Big question, is Coulter blonde or brunette? Or can you not really see her hair? She's blonde. Oh my God. She blonde. Outrage. Hairgate continues. I will be having words with you, Scholastic. <laughs> and Phil. And Phil, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much to Beck at Scholastic for hooking us up with those. That's really cool. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Shall we uh, Shall we get into this chapter? But first, oh. hey, Faye. Oh, fuck. <laughs> hey, Faye. <laughs> hey, that was fucking great. I'm leaving that in. <laughs> hey, Faye. Oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, what would your demon have been this week? God, it's a good job you're on the ball, isn't it? I think that mine would, because of all the hard work that we both put in at the con, I think it would be a little worker bee, a little busy bee, a little worker bee. Oh, nice. Nice, nice, nice. Does that make me the queen bee because you were helping me out? Yes, I think it does. I think it does. Um, But yeah, just because we, you know, we were so busy and we did a lot of work and it was fun. And it would be cute to have a little bee demon sat on my shoulder. 
all day while we're there. And it would have been pretty like in- inconspicuous as well. What about you? What would your demon be? I was looking at because last week was the first week in a long time that I've had I've been like excessively sociable. And this week I'm about to continue being sociable in that, you know, so I've done all the customer service levels of being sociable at Comic-Con and I'm about to actually have things booked that are fun, like going to the theatre and stuff this week. And I was like looking up animals that are particularly sociable and I came up with capybaras because they can be friends with anyone. They're like friends with all the different animals and... They're just super chill and they get along with everybody. Like they're they're friends with crocodiles. It's a thing. And they're so cute. Yeah. And I just was thinking about like us interacting with like all the different people in all the like such varying like levels of like super chill casual wearing a nerdy t-shirt all the way up to the most like intensive cosplays over the weekend. And yeah, feeling like a little chill capybara, like having a lovely little chat with everybody that comes through, being all social. But also, you know, I was like very nervous, a bit kind of like vibrating at nervous frequency all weekend. But be like, you know, capybaras, they're technically like rodents, a bit rodenty, a bit like, ooh, biting your fingernails vibes. So that kind of fits into. Cute. Love that. Yeah. Okay. Now should we get into it? Have I forgotten yeah. anything else? <laughs> I think we're good. Okay, let's do it. The last chapter, we followed Amma as she found a healer and a cure for the enchanted sleeper, which she intended to take to Coulter. After arriving early and sneaking inside the cave, Amma hid from Coulter and the monkey and witnessed the truth of what Mrs. C is really doing to Lyra. Amma and her demon escaped and vowed to return and rescue Lyra. Back in the dreamscape with Lyra and Roger, Lyra realised that she's asleep and feared that she may never wake up. In this chapter, Baruch is attacked on his way to deliver the angel's messages to Asriel. We're introduced to Asriel's fortress and meet Lord Roke, a Galavespian spy who tells Asriel how important Lyra actually is. Baruch is able to deliver the messages to Asriel before he passes away. No. Asriel sends out zeppelins and asks his alethiometrist to locate Lyra. In the dreamscape, Lyra and Roger continue their conversation. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Right, we're with, do you know what? <laughs> we're with Azrael, aren't we, this chapter? We're with Azrael. And like, I don't like it. I didn't miss him in the subtle knife, you know? There were people that I did miss in the subtle knife, like Yorick and, and the Egyptians. I did not miss Azrael. I don't know how I feel about it. It's kind of nice to have him here again because we've been hating on him for ages while he's not been in the room. Now we can actually reaffirm any of our <laughs> our beliefs. True. And I mean, there are some definite bits in this chapter where I'm literally like, fuck you, Asriel. But, you know, we'll get there when we get there. Before we dive in to hating on bad dads, would you like to tell me what the little icon is at the beginning of your chapter? Yeah, it's not... A... I mean, no offence to the person that drew it. Did Phil draw it? I think Phil drew them. Sauce Phil. Phil. But like, it's not a very good one. Rude. It's just the entrance where the little sentry was. It's just a doorway, like a little archway thing. So it's not especially interesting. I should have made you guess, but you wouldn't have guessed that because it's not very good. No, I would have guessed like the tower itself. So I guess it was, but it's just a small section of it. Oh yeah, and are you going to tell us about the, the poem? Yes, so the quote that we get is with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of god raised imperious war in heaven and battle proud so this is from 
Phil's fave, John Milton, and Paradise Lost. We know that Phil bloody loves Paradise Lost. He's obsessed with it. And so it makes absolute sense that this is one of the things he's chosen to quote. Would you like to hear like a bit more that goes either side of that snippet? Kind of give it context? Yes, please. Get ready for me to butcher some poetry. Yay! <laughs> who first seduced them to that foul revolt? The infernal serpent he it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge deceived the mother of mankind. What time his pride had cast him out of heaven with all his host of rebel angels by whose aid aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers. He trusted to have equaled the most high if he opposed with an ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised imperious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt. Him, the almighty power, hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire. (laughs) (laughs) Who does defy the omnipotent to arms? Ooh, I mean, it's pretty spot on, right? Yeah, so it's... Mr. Devil <laughs> is raging a rebellious angel war against God and gets cast down. It's kind of it's like the second paragraph of is an epic poem. So the paragraphs are very bloody long, but it's in like the second segment. And yeah, the stuff around it works very well. Notice the use of the word adamantine, which is going to pop up through the chapter a few times in adamant. Notice talking about him deceiving the mother of mankind and how we've obviously heard Lyra being referred to as Eve, mother of all. And you're just seeing how Phil's been like drawing from this throughout the whole books. So yeah, Asriel waging his little war against the authority is super relevant to this little segment that's introducing how the infernal serpent raged his war against his authority. Oh, paradise lost. (laughs) Love to see it. We start this chapter. We're at a canyon with a lot of molten sulphur and there's a figure standing at the edge of it, which we can, I mean, it's confirmed later, but, you know, pretty much guess it's Baruch, right? There's a bit of a predicament because Baruch is obviously wanting to get to Azrael, but there's four angels that are after him. The option is to fly through this cloud of like... Sulfuric smoke and steam and yeah. But obviously there's a risk there that they will get him while they're in that cloud or when they come out of it. And that's basically exactly what happens. He comes out of the other side of it and unfortunately for him, he is not the first to emerge. One of the angels that has already come after him has already come out and is waiting for him to come out. Gets him. They have a fight. A couple of others come as well and they fall. And that was my summary of the opening paragraphs. (laughs) Love it. Comes out, gets him, done. (laughs) I'm going to read a little snippet because I really love the way that Angel's fighting is described. The quarry had the best of it at first, but then another hunter flew free of the cloud. And in a swift and furious struggle, all three of them, twisting in the air like scraps of flame, rose and fell and rose again, only to fall, finally, among the rocks on the far side. I just love it as them being described as like twisting like scraps of flame because we've had the angels described as being kind of insubstantial but also made of light and so thinking of them as like scraps of flame is just a lovely descriptor. Well done, Phil. Well done. We get a description of Asriel's fortress here and a lot of the descriptions of this make me think of the descriptions of Mordor in The Lord of the Rings. 
So I am going to potentially read out a couple of little bits of this and then read you some snippets from Lord of the Rings to compare, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I just say, Rich, you know this about me. I'm about to expose myself. Uh, I don't like Lord of the Rings. I'm going to expose myself. I've never read the books. I've listened to the audio books and I've watched the films too many times. <laughs> well, that counts as reading the books, listening to the audio books. Yeah, but it was a long time ago and I, I've not picked them up in a very long time. So I feel like I can't claim to like know the books. Yeah, I watched the films when I was younger. Mm, kind of liked them at the time. As I've gotten older, didn't I haven't really gelled with them. I tried to read... I bought the book, like the box set of the books when I was a teenager, tried to read it. I really, really couldn't do it. Like it's really difficult to read, like really, really difficult to read. And I gave up like halfway through the first book. I've just never been like a massive fan of Lord of the Rings. And this is why this whole bit is quite like when I read it, it made me think of Lord of the Rings and I was like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's like Lord of the Rings. That's why I dislike it. Yeah, literally. <laughs> and like that's gonna that's exposing me, and I'm sure people will be mad at me. But you know, it's my opinion. I don't like Lord of the Rings. I'm not saying it's bad. I just don't like it. I am interested to hear the comparison. So please go ahead. Uh, so Asriel's Tower is described as being at the western end of a range of sawtooth mountains on a peak that commanded wide views of the plain below and the valleys behind. A fortress of basalt seemed to grow out of the mountain as if some volcano had thrust it up a million years before. And then we get descriptions of all of the arsenals and the things that are stored there. And we get volcanic fires fed mighty forges where phosphor and titanium were being melted and combined. Exposed sides of the fortresses were showing mighty buttresses and ancient <laughs> lava flows, a small gate. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Mighty buttresses. Yeah. <laughs> I knew the moment I said you were like, Faye's going to laugh at buttresses. I did. I had to Google it because I didn't know what it was. Oh. And I I did laugh and I screenshotted the uh, description of what it means because that also made me laugh. Um. <laughs> Describe a mighty buttress to us, Faye, please. So it says, a structure of stone or brick, uh, or brick built against a wall to strengthen or support it. And then the example of it used in a sentence is, the cathedral's massive buttresses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a child. Please continue. Fun fact, Notre Dame has really lovely buttresses. They're on the outside. Uh, Buttresses that are exposed and on the outside of a building are often called flying buttresses. (laughs) This shows how many churches and like abbeys and things I went to with my family growing up. We would, if we went visiting somewhere, there was like a stately home or like abbey or castle or whatever nearby we'd visit and that's how i know what a buttress is notre dame has some lovely buttresses i would love to see notre dame's lovely flying buttresses (laughs) (laughs) oh my god help me i'm nearly 30 (laughs) i feel like that would be a great like costume to an architect's halloween party what are you i'm a flying buttress (laughs) okay i'm sorry tell me tell me more so think about this tower that Asriel's got this basalt tower like thrust out of the mountainside all this volcanic vibes um and the fires and the forges and how it's basically like all of this like armory being built down there so this is 
I'm not sure where it is in the books, but it's a description of Baradur, which is the tower that Sauron is in. So in the movies, it's the one with the eye on top, but in the books, there may or may not be an eye. Sometimes Sauron is described as pacing around the tower as if he has a body and isn't just a giant disembodied floaty eye. And sometimes you do get the idea that it is more like a searchlight of an eye kind of vibe in the books. Then at last his gaze was held, wall upon wall, battlement upon battlement, black, immeasurably strong, mountain of iron, gate of steel, tower of adamant. He saw it, Baradur, fortress of Sauron, and all hope left him. Tower of adamant? The adamant tower? Later in this chapter, Asriel is described as being in the adamant tower and... I thought that was great. I wonder if Phil has pulled it from that. And then I was looking up what adamant actually is. I was like, is it just that it's a thing? And it is also a type of stone. Yeah, that was going to be my question for you is what is it? Because I had a look as well and I found that I found it quite confusing. It's like it seems to be used in different ways, right? Yeah, so... Adamant, noun, archaic, a legendary rock or mineral to which many properties were attributed, formerly associated with diamond or lodestone, which is interesting because later in the chapter we have somebody talking about a lodestone resonator, which could be linked. Um, But also adamant as an adjective is describing someone that is refusing to be persuaded or change one's mind, which I think in terms of something that relates to Asriel, that's a really great descriptor. And so I think it's all really interlinked. But I love that in Lord of the Rings, it is, an, it is also described as an adamant tower. And it is potentially this rock with like kind of magical properties. Uh, if it's something akin to like something having properties like diamond, that means it's probably very strong, very like rugged. But yeah, or having like slightly magical properties. I think that's really cool. Um, so this kind of feels more like perhaps the lake that Baruch is flying through, but this is a description of Mordor, more like the landscape of Mordor. Mist curled and smoked from dark and noisome pools. The reek of them hung, stifling the still air. Far away, now almost due south, the mountain the mountain walls of Mordor loomed like a black bar of rugged clouds floating above a dangerous fog-bound sea. There's lots of descriptions of the air around Mordor being like harsh and bitter and noxious which again, that like noxious pool that Brooks just had to fly through. I just think it's really interesting that Phil's got one of his heroic characters in this novel pitching up in a place that is described so similarly to the place of the villain in Lord of the Rings. I just think it's great. (laughs) If anyone else has some excellent comparisons that they can pull off the top of their heads, we would love to hear them, tweet them to us. If you can think of any other like badass towers that are described similarly or if you know anything else about adamant because you know before this i only knew it as the description of somebody being stubborn or straightforward whereas i I didn't know it was a rock a magical rock a magic rock (laughs) no me neither i didn't know that i did not know that amazing thanks for fucking lord of the rings corner rich love to see that yeah well i i tried <laughs> i hope it was good i'm sorry if i've ruined lord of the rings no you didn't there's a gate in the fortress where somebody is on watch this made me giggle because like he's 10 minutes away from clocking off and he's thinking about like his nice warm like bed and like chocolate and stuff and then somebody knocks on the door and it really reminds me of when i used to work in retail and you'd be like shut in the shop and somebody would like stick their head in and be like excuse me are you still open? And you'd have to say yes. 
even though you like you were like pulling the shutters down because you had 10 minutes left and you're like for fuck's sake that would be my reaction to this i'd be like how fucking dare you i'm clocking off in 10 minutes for some reason i'm i'm very highbrow this week what it reminds me of is the first scene of hamlet oh my god <laughs> i'm so it's just hamlet literally opens with a, a sentry on watch and he's a he's waiting to be relieved. He's about to finish his watch, and then he witnesses um, an apparition appearing in front of him, and it's the ghost of the king. But just the idea of it being this sentry that's like cold, and I think I've seen Hamlet. I think I've seen Hamlet a couple of times actually. Uh, <laughs> She's posh northern uh, guys. She's posh northern. We know this. No, my lovely friend Ash, who grew up in Oxford, and he was the one who may give us a tour. Should we go? for the podcast um he runs a like local theater company in oxford and they do a shakespeare in the castle when it's like the oxford theater festival and i've helped out with that a couple of times one year it was hamlet and that's one of the times that i saw it they do like condensed shakespeare um and yes it starts with somebody on watch that's like cold and he just wants to get taken off his shift and then uh, somebody does join him and then they witness a ghost. So it just has that vibe of like somebody's on watch waiting to get off the shift and then a ghost or an angel carried in on a stretcher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's three figures carrying in Baruch and they say that he has an urgent mess- message for Azrael. I'm very surprised that they just like, I know that like the people, well, whoever the people that Baruch is with have the password to get into the fortress, but I'm very surprised that they just take Baruch at his word when he's like, oh, I've got a message for Azrael. They're like, oh, cool, like, come on in. Like, he could have been doing anything. He could have been <laughs> the there The message to, like... is, fuck you, I'm an assassin. <laughs> yeah, right? He could have been there yeah. to, like, fucking sabotage. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, he is seemingly quite weak, though, right, at this point. They might just be like, eh, he's tried this hard to get here. We should probably... <laughs> he tried. Let's let him in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the sentry's demon howls at the at Baroque, which is cute i can't tell whether is he scared of him is he surprised to see that he's an angel because it sounds like they don't get a lot of angels around asriel's way but i could be wrong they lay him down in the guard room and then we, this is where we learn that asriel's in the in the tower of adamant um and his setup sounds a lot like the setup that he had in at the end of northern lights with the big windows and like the desk and the chair and, and stuff like that um, which I thought Azrael's clearly got a type of room that he enjoys. He, he likes a big window. <laughs> he loves a big Probably window. Probably because he knows that they're expensive. <laughs> he would have loved my old flat. <laughs> All windows. Yes. So he is talking to his spy captain, who is called Lord Rook. He was striking to look at. He was no taller than Lord Azrael's handspan and as slender as a dragonfly. But the rest of Lord Azrael's captains treated him with profound respect for he was armed with a poisonous sting in the spurs on his heels i love this i'm just gonna read the next bit as well because it makes me laugh it was his custom to sit on the table and his manner to repel anything but the greatest courtesy with a haughty and malevolent tongue he and his kind the i always get this wrong galavespians galavespians had few of the qualities of good spies, except, of course, their exceptional smallness. They were so proud and touchy that they would never have remained inconspicuous if they had been of Lord Asriel's size. This is so fucking great. I love, I love it. <laughs> Number one, I feel like the bit where it says, and his manner to repel anything but the greatest courtesy with a haughty and malevolent tongue, 
Sam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then also the fact that they would be terrible spies if they weren't so small. Love that. This is just great. I love this so much. I, love I feel it. like Phil's just kind of like reading them for Phil. <laughs> he really <well>. is. <laughs> so it's a real read. So Galavespians, I only know how to say that. Partly because of the interview with Jane Tranter where she mentions them and she calls them the Galavespians. And I was like, oh, that's how you say it then. Partly because of the audiobooks. Reading them these books as a child, I read it as Galavespains the whole time. I struggle with it massively. Like you've said it to me so many times and I, obviously, like you said, we heard Jane say it and I've heard other people say it. But when I come to read it, I really struggle to read it every time. Like it takes me a couple of seconds to like sound it out in my head. I don't know what it is about it. It turns into letter soup when I look at it. Um, and when I'm reading it in my head, I recognise the word. I know that I'm not very good at sounding it out in my head. So I tend to just skim over it. And so it, that's how it became Gal of Spain's in my head when I was reading it as a kid. Um, and it's just one of those things. And that there's, it's kind of the same with some of their names, which are super fun and hard to pronounce as well. <laughs> I have like some, I, we've definitely spoken about this probably at the beginning of Northern Lights, but I have so many words that I learned from reading that I'd never said out loud. And then when I heard people say them out loud, I was like, huh? That's not how I've been saying that in my head. And this is definitely one of them. I actually don't know how I would pronounce this. I I do the same thing as you and I just skim over it. Galavespians. That's right. Yeah. Galavespians. Galavespians. Yeah. Okay. Galavespians. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Say it again. Galavespians, Galavespians until it doesn't make sense. Galavespians. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure when um, the TV show comes out, it'll become more ingrained into our heads. But yes, I love them. I think they're hilariously. I, I love, I just love the fact that, like you said, Phil's read them for filth. It's incredible. They'd be awful spies if they were regular size, but they do happen to be the size of a large teacup. So, Also, this next bit is so funny to me. I'm just going to read it. Lord Rourke says to Asriel, your child, uh, my Lord Asriel, I know about her. Evidently, I know more than you do. Lord Asriel looked at him directly and the little man knew at once he'd taken advantage of his commander's courtesy. The force of Lord Asriel's glance flicked him like a finger so that he lost his balance and had to put out a hand to steady himself on Lord Asriel's wine glass. A moment later, Lord Asriel's expression was bland and virtuous, just as his daughter's could be, and from then on, Lord Roke was more careful. A fucking look! You don't want that look from Asriel, fucking no. flick you into a wine glass. So controversially this is where Azrael's gonna say some shit through this chapter and we're gonna be like fuck you Lyra's an absolute angel and I don't know why you're being rude about her but this moment where Lord Roke is like evidently I know more about your own daughter than you do which is the sass that Azrael deserves must have hit a sore point I wonder if he's ever so slightly self-conscious of it or insecure insecure about how little he knows about his own daughter I think it is a sore spot and that's why that look came from because if he genuinely didn't give a shit about her or didn't feel any kind of acknowledgement of how shitty of a father he is he wouldn't have shot that look I think I think it's a sore spot I agree I definitely think it's a sore spot but do you think it's a sore spot because he actually cares about her or because he wants people to think that he cares about her is it more of a outward perception thing than an inward I love my daughter thing I don't know and it's so hard to say because then he goes Asriel goes on to just absolutely slate Lyra being like I don't know why she could be special it's like it's your own kid mate like (laughs) you're supposed to think they're special what a fucking dickhead but I will say there are moments in this where we and similar with Mrs Coulter where we see the more human side of Asriel that we haven't seen before 
And I think it's because we're not reading it from Lyra's perspective anymore. Like whenever we've been with Azriel, it's been from Lyra's perspective and she wouldn't pick up on this kind of stuff because she's still holding him at the time. She was still holding him up to be this like perfect guy. And then with, with Mrs. Coulter, very similarly, she was holding her up to be this like at first this perfect woman, but then obviously this evil woman like in inverted commas in her mind she's not seeing these nuances and i think that's why we're getting them And i think it's clever of phil to do that and we're seeing a little bit more of the human side of asriel which i like seeing to be honest i really do i definitely agree with you that it's an insecurity and a sore spot but i just don't know where that's coming from is it as well because he's seen like he wants to be seen that he has he has all the knowledge, like he's the all powerful one in this situation. And for somebody saying like, I know more about this thing than you do, whether it be his daughter or not, is that what it is? See, I would have said that. And maybe it is because it's about his own daughter, but like he can't be claiming to know everything because otherwise, why would he have spies? Like, and his chief spy giving him information is literally his job. I think it's more just the like, I know more about your own daughter than you do. It's like, he feels like he should know more about her. And that's why it's a sore spot because it is partly the like, why are you trying to tell me you know more than I do? But only, I think, because it's this thing that he feels like he ought to know more about, perhaps. Because you should be a more attentive father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The church is searching for Lyra. Lord Roke tells Asriel that Lyra is the main focus of the church at the moment. Two particular factions to be aware of that are searching for her are the Consistorial Court of Discipline, which is Mrs. Coulter's side of the church. We've heard about her being linked to that in the past. And the work of the Holy Spirit. We get this great little story about how one of the Galavespian spies, the Lady Salmachia, about how she's infiltrated the Holy Spirit by having a little chat to a priest demon when he was sleeping and getting him to do a ritual that would invoke the presence of wisdom and then conveniently appearing when he invoked the presence of wisdom. So now he just thinks there's a magical wisdom spirit that lives in his bookcase that he can confide in. How fucking gullible is this priest? (laughs) I love this story. I want to see it played out. It's so silly. Yeah, it really is. I love it. Silly. But also just like, is this priest demon just like, is the mouse in on it mm. or not? Because like, surely the mouse would say to the guy, oh, that spirit of wisdom that we've been talking to is the same person that told me to invoke the spirit of wisdom. Like, I don't know how it works. I don't know either. Very odd, but I love it. I love the story. We know that the... I'm going to shorten it to CCD, which might ring some bells for anyone that's read the books of just... Oh, yeah. The Consistorial Court of Discipline, or the CCD, they're holding inquiries into Bolvanger and stuff at the moment. The vibe is the Society of the Work of the Holy Spirit is like closer to finding out where Lyra is, but they're less likely to do something about it when they find out. And the CCD is further away from finding out, but when they do, they'll act quickly, which is really an interesting combo of things that are going on. Also, can I just say it's very classic of these things within the magisterium not communicating with each other. They could be helping each other out. Every company I've ever worked at, departments do not communicate properly. And like, it just reminds me of that. Like, just talk to each other, guys. Like, you could help each other out here. No, they're weirdly in competition with each other despite having probably the same goal. And the other spy that is in the court is called Chevalier Talese, but he is communicating by means of a lodestone resonator, which I just wanted to hark back to that being the same thing as potentially linking to adamant. And we will hear more, I think, about lodestone resonators, which is fun. Rook then leaves 
on his little blue hawk and it's got like a saddle and stirrups and stuff. I am so obsessed with this hawk and its little saddle and its little stirrups and its little reins. It's just the image is so cute. I fucking hope that they just go all out with it on uh, on the TV series. I want to see this little hawk. I even googled blue hawks to be like, how blue is a blue hawk? Surprisingly blue. They're like a really beautiful, like steely, petroly, grey blue. Really Ooh, nice. Very nice. pretty birds. Yeah, so they're, they're skedaddle. And I just wanted to call out this bit with Asriel. He left it open for a minute in spite of the bitter air and leant on the window seat, playing with the ears of his snow leopard demon. Yeah, Stell. <laughs> and just again, that's like kind of a softer, more intimate moment for Asriel that we haven't really seen before. Um, I don't think we've really even seen him touch Selmiri before. Maybe he's like grabbed her at some point or something, but never in like a, a affectionate way. Yeah. So Asriel being so surprised that Lyra is important is kind of annoying. This first bit here, though, sorry to interrupt you. Is he saying that he should have killed her? I feel like it's just a little exposition moment, to be honest, when he's like, she came to me on Svalbard and I ignored her. Uh, you remember the shock I needed a sacrifice and the first child to arrive was my own daughter. It's like, we know this, mate. Come on. We, we read Northern Lights. Wrap it up, wrap it up. But then I realised there was another child with her, so she was safe. I was relaxed. Was that a fatal mistake? I didn't consider her after that moment. Uh, after that, not for a moment, but she is important, Maria. Why didn't you consider her for a moment after that, Asriel? Thanks very much. Just the bit where he says, was that a fatal mistake? That made me think, is he saying that, was it a fatal mistake and he should have killed her instead of Roger? You see, I don't know. Because I didn't know if it was, is it a fatal mistake that he's that he's not considered her for a moment as well. But then it, it was in the wrong order for that. Maybe it was a fatal mistake to not pay more attention to her. Because he should have. It's just so fucking shitty. Let's think clearly, his demon replied. What can she do? Do? Not much. Does she know something? She can read the alethiometer. She has access to knowledge. That's nothing special. So have others. Where in hell's name can she be? Asriel, you fucking piece of shit. The fact that he has no respect for her after she traversed the globe to get to take this alethiometer to him that she thought he wanted is wild. Like, he ha doesn't seem to have picked up any respect for her, her ability to get from A to B as a child and, like, pick up these, like, make these connections along the way, find allies in places. She explained how she got to him, I think, and all this lying that she'd had to do and all of the things that she'd done to bring him the, the alethiometer and the fact that she can read it without the books is very special. How has he not picked up on any of it? And also, why is he downplaying her ability to read the alethiometer? Because, yeah, others can read it, but it takes others weeks to find an answer to a question. So, like, why is he being a fucking piece of shit? It's really dismissive. Perhaps we could say that Asriel's biggest flaw at this point, aside from being an absolute prick, is his terrific ability to underestimate Lyra. To underestimate Lyra and... To be honest, probably the rest of humanity, which gives him an overestimation of himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a particularly rough Azrael bit because we haven't seen him since the end of Northern Lights. And now we know that this is his reaction to, like you said, Lyra going to literally the ends of the earth to find him. This is his reaction to it. I don't know, right? I'm sorry, listeners, I'm calling you out. I don't know how anyone... <laughs> 
can like Asriel. What the <laughs> fuck? I know I say it all the time, but this is fucking shit. Like, this is so shitty. It's so shitty. From this chapter, I think it's a really great example of how he... We've had a little bit of humanity from him in his interaction with Stelmaria, perhaps seeing some of his insecurities. We're about to see him being a very good commander in terms of, like, ordering people around, which we know that he enjoys doing. So I think perhaps just giving that nuance to the character is great. And again, it just brings us all back to that. I'm sure Azrael is a great man with a capital G, but great men and great people are not necessarily nice people or good people. That's why I can't idolise Azrael, because like morally, ethically, <laughs> he is not a good person to the people around him. Like he might have like this great, supposedly good goal in the long run. But his big picture thinking means that he is a shitty person to all of the little pictures that are happening around him. And I hate that. He's just not a kind person. I really hate that. And I find it very difficult to move past to see his qualities that you might like. I can't even say it. (laughs) (laughs) Go and wash your mouth out now. (laughs) I just... I like, uh, we're doing a BBC here, like we've got to bring some balance to it. You've got to show both sides, both perspectives. And my other perspective is just, yeah, I'm sure he's like a capital G great guy, but like he's not a capital G good guy. (laughs) So sorry about it. Anyway, one thing that he almost manages to do, almost, is be a good listener. Shall we find out how? (laughs) Only almost, because he does interrupt. (laughs) So, Asriel's interrupted from his chain of thought by a knock at the door, and some of his officers come in carrying Baruch, who is being carried in on a camp bed, and looks very wounded and not in a good way. Not in a good way at all. It says there's little hope for the angel. And I have a lot to say about this, but I'm going to wait until we actually lose Baruch, and then I'm going to go for it. Azriel throws some herbs on the fire so that he can see him better, which is noted that Will also noticed with the angels when he was with them. I am so here for Brooke's opening sentence. Three things. Please let me say them all before you speak. I'm going to take that into my life. I mean, us on this podcast, I'm a serial interrupter. But if you ever started a thing with being like, I have three things, please let me say them all. I would like to think I might have the capacity to actually <laughs> hold back and not interrupt Are you. Are you Asriel in this situation? <laughs> You're like, oh, is there like... <laughs> I want to input. <laughs> But I have something to say. Uh, you always say you interrupt me, but I never really notice it. I'm glad. I'm, I hope it's not something that annoys the listeners. I just, if I don't say something there and then, half the time I forget it or the conversation's completely sidetracked and then it becomes irrelevant and I feel like I'm... So that's why I'm a terrible interrupter. Anyway. <laughs> so he says a lot of stuff here. The three things that he says, two of them we already... Most of them we already know, right? We already know a lot of them. It's basically just kind of repeating what we know about the cloud mountain and all that shite. But we learn that in terms of like Metatron and the authority, we learn that basically we know that the authority chose Metatron to be his regent. That was like 4,000 years ago. They made plans together and their new plan is that the authority basically considers 
that conscious beings of every kind have become dangerously independent, so Metatron is going to intervene more actively in human affairs. He intends to move the Authority secretly away from the Clouded Mountain to a permanent citadel somewhere else and turn the mountain into an engine of war. The churches in every world are corrupt and weak, he thinks. They compromise too readily. He wants to set up a permanent inquisition in every world, run directly from the kingdom, and his first campaign will be to destroy your republic. So he come in. He come in. I love that the vibe is Azrael thinks the churches are corrupt and weak and must be destroyed and therefore is going after the authority. The authority thinks the churches are corrupt and weak in that they're not being harsh enough and therefore is going after Azrael. It's like the church is being corrupt and weak is like the centre point that's fucking everything up. At least we can agree on this one thing. The churches are corrupt and weak. Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's worth noting that the authority is retired to a chamber of crystal, which pings a little pin that I put oh, yeah. in a thing that the Cliffgast might have overheard a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> true, true, true. I am here for the space that Asriel gives Baruch in the pauses because we Phil does a great job of like a paragraph of Baruch managing to get a sentence out and then he had to stop for a moment to breathe in the smoke and the herbs which seemed to steady him and then continue. And Asriel doesn't interrupt in the pauses, which I think is really important so far and it does a really good job of making us as the reader slightly impatient to get through it and find out more information as well and then Baruch tells Asriel about the knife which we already know and like I kind of forgot like how little Asriel knows do you know like all this stuff that we know because we were there in this little knife and Asriel wasn't and it's like oh the fact that he's like shooketh that Grumman has a son I'm like, get with it, Asriel. We found that out ages ago. <laughs> get with the program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit like, your spy network, they're not in the right places. Like, they might be in the church, but you've completely forgot to send somebody after your own fucking daughter. If I had a spy network and an estranged child, as unethical as it would probably be, I probably would at least get someone to keep tabs on my kid. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, classic Asriel, I don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> Baruch tells him that, obviously, Lyra is with Will and Asriel wants to know where Will is, where he can find Lyra, where he can find both of them. That's the point where he interrupts her. He's like, who is this boy? And it's like, Asriel, let him finish. He might have found out if you'd have just let him finish. And also the fact that he says like, who is this boy first rather than being like, well, where is my daughter? Says a lot. He's more concerned about who wields the powerful thing than the safety of his child. Yes. Brooke tells him that Lyra is in a cave near a valley full of rainbows and Asriel says, a long way from here in birth worlds, you flew quickly. It's the only gift I have, said Baruch, except the love of Balthamos, whom I shall never see again. And we all broke a little bit mm -hmm. inside. Poor one out. <laughs> Poor one out. Poor a big one out. Honestly, ugh, my heart. I'll get to the end, we'll get to the end, it's fine. <laughs> I've got a lot to say about the death of Baruch. We'll get there, we'll get there. Azrael wants Baruch to show him on the atlas exactly where Lyra is. And then Baruch starts to like, his mind starts to wander. He starts to like say different things because he's like obviously very close to death. He's, he's probably not fucking listening to Azrael at this point, which is, you know, fair enough. And we learn basically that Metatron, that we knew it already, but is a fucking vile bastard. I am intrigued to know... So it says Metatron knows we have his secret 
uh, they pursued us. They caught me alone on the borders of your world. I was his brother. That's how we found our way to him in the clouded mountain. Metatron was once Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalal. Uh, Enoch had many wives. Uh, he was a lover of the flesh. My brother Enoch cast me out because I... Oh, my dear Balthamos, the way it's worded in the audiobook makes it very fucking clear that Enoch is a massive homophobe and serial polygamist, is it? If he has many wives? Don't know. It could be polyamorous, it could be lovely, but the vibe we're getting from him if he's a massive fucking homophobe is that that's not a lovely polyamorous circle, that's a man with many wives in a way that is not chill. Also, the phrase lover of the flesh. Gross. Mm-mm-mm. Gross. Does that mean Baruch is Enoch's brother? Does that mean Baruch is related to Metatron? Or does he mean he was my brother in terms of like all angels are brothers and sisters in that way? Or I assumed that they, it meant that they were they were brothers. Literal brothers. Literal brothers. I think it hits harder as well with the casting him out and the horrible homophobia um, that is very apparent. I don't know whether to say this now. So Baruch is about to die, right? And I really want to bring this up. And I don't know if you have listened to the Unbury Your Gaze episode of Buffering, the Vampire Slayer. I have, yes. I listened the other day, actually. So this really made me think of the Bury Your Gaze trope. So that trope, for, it's, it's a TV trope, but I mean, I think it can be applied here as well. I think it's TV and film. And yeah, I think it can also apply to other media what that trope is is so i am looking at this from tvtropes.org <clears throat> the like definition really is this trope is a presentation of deaths of lgbt characters where these characters are nominally able to be viewed as more expendable than their heterosexual counterparts in this way the death is treated as exceptional in its circumstances queer characters are more likely to die than straight characters. Indeed, it may be because they seem to have less purpose compared to straight characters, or that the supposed natural conclusion of their story is an early death. Even when there is a perfectly valid narrative reason for the writers to choose to kill off the character, or it serves the story perfectly, it's often the case that killing one queer character is removing the only positive representation within the narrative. Additionally, given the ratio of mainstream queer narratives that end in tragedy compared to ones with a genuinely happy ending, any addition to the list of the dead is often greeted with dismay, no matter how technically well executed. This trope is exactly what it says on the tin. It's burying the gay characters. And I think that this is an example of that. This is the only, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this is the only queer represent, the only, I mean, obviously we make everything queer, but this is the only textual, yes, yeah. textual queer relationship in this book. And it has now been removed because this character has been killed. I can't go into too much detail about it because I'm not incredibly well versed on it, but I do encourage everyone to go onto Buffer in the Vampire Slayer's feed and listen to their episode called Unbury Your Gaze, which talks about this at length and references Willow and Tara's relationship and the death of Tara as part of this trope. And I do think that this fits into it perfectly. And I would never have thought this if I hadn't listened to that episode. So thank you, Buffering. Obviously, you always do great work, but... I think this is a very, very, very clear example of this. Whether Phil meant it or not, it's definitely an example of it. Absolutely. When I listened to this chapter, when I read this chapter, I was really surprised that we lose Brooke this soon in the book because they made such a big impact on me. And I know that 
for a lot of the fans of the books, especially a lot of queer fans of the books, we have seen that relationship. We've seen on the page an author doing a beautiful description of this gay relationship, of this queer relationship. It made such an impact on me as a reader and on so many of us that I genuinely thought we had more time with both of those characters. Yeah, so And it is just wild to me that we've only known them for a chapter and a half. No, I completely agree. I thought that we had much more time with them. A, a listener maybe put it in the Discord or in an email or a tweet, I can't really remember, but somebody said like, oh, I'm not looking forward to to the next chapter. And I was like, oh, I wonder what happens in the next chapter. Is it because it, it's an Asriel chapter and they don't like Asriel? And then I was like, oh no, like this is, this is why, but it's so soon. And it's a real shame because... Yeah, it was such a beautifully written relationship. It was a beautiful depiction of like, especially a queer relationship, but kind of like a tender masculinity that you don't often read in terms of the way that they were like interacting with each other. Yeah, just really beautiful. And it's absolutely that trope of like, yep, there's a reason we all got really attached to this because it was so well done. And now we've had it taken away less than a couple of chapters later. And it's shitty that it's part of a trope and it's shitty that it's the only representation in the books that we aren't having to create for ourselves everyone's like yeah kudos phil that's how you do it that's how you write it in the book and yes we're so glad they're there but god damn it this book is so thick and we've lost him it's uh, this far in this far i'm showing the book is such a thin section of book that we've actually spent with these two with this couple both being alive and you know what like what we said a couple of episodes ago when we were so happy and we were like oh my god like queer love amazing like you just said this is how you do it phil obviously i stand by that but like i think i would have been a little bit more cautious about that if i knew how quick if i remembered how quickly he got killed off I just truly forgot and didn't realize because like you said it's it, it holds so much meaning and impact that you think that it lasts longer than it does and it doesn't I don't like that it's part of, of a trope and I wonder like it's so interesting with with these things that become tropes within tv and and pop culture is a lot of the time the people that are writing them don't even realize that they're part of a trope you know and I wonder like because nobody writes something to uh, to like purposely be part of a trope that's just not how it works like nobody would want that because they want their work to be seen as original but there's a reason why these tropes exist and these books were written in the 90s and I get that we're in a different place now in 2021 but it still just feels like it still like hurts my soul to read this and for it to be part of this like horrible trope of of killing off queer characters like I don't we don't need that we don't want it I think it's a thing of like, yeah, a writer might deliberately pull on certain themes that you see that are iconic. This isn't an iconic theme. This is a trope that is harmful to a particular community. And it's not, it's a horror film and it's a trope that the main character is going to go into the basement when they hear a noise. Oh, it happens in all the horror films. Ah. It's no, it's, we've got a queer character and... We're going to kill them off. Oh, is that a trope? Is that a thing that happens a lot? Oops, sorry, I didn't know. It's like, well, the community is telling you that it keeps fucking happening. And like, I don't care if you didn't mean it. (laughs) Or that's not the intention. Like, it keeps happening. It would be really great if we could have some characters that don't die. Like you were saying, that episode of Buffering is really great, especially because of the scholars that they have conversations with, where we get, you get a lot more history of like, 
where these tropes originated as well, especially in terms of how it related to the... There were, like, particular cinematic standards that people had to adhere to, which meant that if you did show a gay character, you had to kill them off or you had to show a consequence for... I'm using big big air quotes, immoral behaviour, because they were scared of all of these bigoted standards that were in place. We'll link to that episode of Buffering in the description um, so that you can all go and listen to it. I would recommend spoilers for season, season six of Buffy. I already said it anyway, but sorry if you're not, yeah. <laughs> not that far, but oops. I'm, I'm really glad that I listened to that episode as well um, because I don't think that I... I would have been sad that Baruch had been killed off, but I wouldn't have been able to articulate why I was so upset about it. And I think that episode of Buffering, like, I didn't know that that trope existed. So I think that that episode of Buffering really helped me process a lot of thoughts around that kind of stuff. I don't know what I thought happened. I just completely forgot that we lost him. And again, that's shitty that it's kind of a throwaway moment. It's don't shoot the messenger. They've literally shot the messenger. It just so happens that we were really attached to this messenger and his amazing relationship. He's there to fulfill this purpose and then dies and it's not considered necessarily what that means to the people that are reading it. Unfortunately, the way he dies as well is in a really like, oh my God, so many comparisons to Tara. It's in a really inconsequential, oh, somebody opened a door and so he blew away. Oh, stray bullet. Oh, it was on accident. That's the kicker, isn't it? Somebody opened the door and he fucking blew away. Like, what the fuck is that? Like, it's that thing, oh, it was nobody's fault. Oh, well, that's all right then. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> We're doing great over here. Thanks for asking. <sighs> His last word is Balthamos. Uh, oh, I'm <laughs> I am fine. I am doing okay. It's an orderly that opens the door and he assumes that Asriel's going to be fucking livid at him. And also I assumed that Asriel would have been livid, livid at him. Because you remember in Northern Lights, is it, doesn't he have a go at a servant at some point for knocking the wine over even though he did it? Yeah. I suppose he's not covering up his own thing in this way, but yeah. But again, really shows how Asriel views so many of the people around him as disposable because this angel has just brought him really important information and then died. And his response is, oh, not your fault. Take my compliments to Lord Agunway and... Uh, I would be glad to hear if he has any of the commanders that could come here at once, et cetera, et cetera, gives a bunch of orders and doesn't take a moment, doesn't say anything that displays any kind of gratefulness for having received this information or the efforts that Baruch has gone to to bring it to him. It's very treating people as being disposable. And it's, it's not Asriel's fault that Baruch died. That was It's the fault of the angels that were pursuing him and attacked him, et cetera, et cetera. But also, he's not treated this person with very much respect um very much anything like he's obviously sat there and listened and got the information he wanted but i just would have hoped that there would have been any more kind of reaction to his death well this is the thing because he's only treated him he only treated him with respect when he was alive because he wanted the he needed the information from him i don't think you would have like given him a fucking second glance if he didn't have anything for him like, I'm glad he's not how to go at the servant, but I'm also, it's so cold just moving on straight away. It's not like he knew the guy, but take a moment, just have a beat, reflect on it, something. <sighs> so he fires off a bunch of orders showing how Asriel is doing what great men do, which is ordering people around and getting stuff going and being very mission orientated, which is all well and good. 
but not very human. He sends Zeppelins off to head, we can only assume, towards the direction that Lyra is probably in until he has more information. And he calls also for his alethiometrist and has a little chat with Stell where he's like, we've learned a lot, he says quietly. And she's like, but not enough. No, because he blew away. And then the alethiometrist comes in. Azrael is basically like, put everything aside. This is the most important thing you've ever worked on ever. Find out where this cave is. Is he wanting to find Lyra because he knows that she's now with Will, who's got the knife, even though she's not with Will anymore? Is it that? Is it that he knows the church wants Lyra and so he wants Lyra first? Oh, now you want Lyra. Yeah. Is it that everyone else is after her, so I guess I should be too. Is it, yeah, she is important. He knows now that she is important, but he doesn't necessarily know why. I think it's a a combo, combo of all the things. She's important. The church are after her. He needs to get there first. Also, she's with the knife bearer or not with the knife bearer. The knife bearer is looking for her. But what she is doing right now is dreaming. Yeah, she's still dreaming. Segue. <laughs> nice, nice segue. Yeah, we go back to her in the dream. She is mad that Roger said that she won't remember when she wakes up. She stamps her little feet and she's like, I will. <laughs> this is a really nice quote. Well, nice, I think is the wrong word. Probably creepy is better. She looked around, but all she could see were wide eyes and hopeless faces, pale faces, Dark faces, old faces, young faces, all the dead cramming and crowding close and silent and sorrowful. And then she asks Roger why he doesn't look so miserable like the rest of them. And he says, because... And then we don't get to find out because what until probably the end of the next chapter. We hope. (laughs) That is the end of that chapter. Would you like to know what the next chapter's called? Yes, please. It's called Preemptive Absolution. Oh, sounds complicated. (laughs) And just... Skipping forward, is your quote from the last chapter the same as this chapter? Or have I got an error in my book? As in the quote at the beginning? Yeah. No, it's different. Oh my God, I've got I've got an error in my book. I'm going to have to send you a picture. Yeah, I won't know what it is. It says, relics, beads, indulgences, dispensers, pardons, bowls, the sport of winds. And it's John Milton again. They've accidentally repeated. This one's from the Adamant Tower. And the exact same one is for preemptive absolution. Anybody else that has this edition of the book, keep your eye out for that. We bloody love a printing error. <laughs> I don't know why, but we do love it. Yeah. If you have the, uh, let's check when this was published. <laughs> if you have the 2000 edition, oh no, 2001 edition of uh, the Amber Spyglass with the orange cover in the paperback, just just check to see if you've got the same quote twice on accident because oops. <laughs> Oopsie. Somebody tell Point Publishing. (laughs) They've done a a mistake. (laughs) Do you have an award to give out? It's obviously for Baruch. Yeah, same. Obviously, he's got to get it, right? Yeah. I just... I didn't think this was coming so soon. When I was reading the chapter, it really snuck up on me. I was convinced we spent longer with him and we don't. He's my favourite golden retriever angel boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just really, I genuinely thought we had so much more interaction between him and Balthamar. So I, I, for, I just forgot. And I'm so upset at myself that I forgot. <laughs> I also forgot. It's easy with stuff like that because it, when things are so impactful, you th- like a lot of the time, you know, you put so much of yourself into it that you feel like it lasts a lot longer than it did. We can all go and have a little cry now on this unexpectedly very sad episode. <laughs> 
maybe, maybe next time Johnny Knott, who does our music, is free, I can get him to write some kind of angel song for us. <laughs> Like instead of balloon dad, it'll be like angel boyfriend. I don't know how we'd make like two verses and like pre-choruses from Baruch when we've known him for like one chapter, but you know. Maybe it would be more of a jingle, a sad jingle. (laughs) I think it would go like, just gay angels in love. Oh my God. (laughs) And then a sad little twinkly sound. Nice. You've done it. You've written it. I'll send that to Johnny and be like, make it sound good. Auto-tune me. (laughs) Like share. Yeah. Do you believe in gay angels and love? <laughs> yeah. Something inside myself. Oh, amazing. I was gonna join in, but I've got I've got a really sore throat rage, so <laughs> I'm sick. <laughs> sick. If you've enjoyed this episode of Her Dot Materials and all of the other episodes of Her Dot Materials, we would absolutely love it if you left us a review. And to incentivize review leaving, we are running a giveaway where if you leave us a review and you screenshot that review and email it over to us at her.materialspod at gmail.com. When we hit 50 entries, we will pull 10 names out of a hat and those 10 people will get some HDM pod bookmarks. And one of those 10 people will get the full up-to-date merch pack of all of the different stickers that we do. So if we hit 50 by before the end of this book, you'll get seasons one and two and some stickers. And if we take all the time until the end of this book, then you'll probably get one, two and three. Give us five stars. Say nice things, please. If you can't review us or you don't want to, you can always tell a friend about us. Uh, what else can you do? You can follow us on social media. Shout us out on social media because I love it when people tag us and stuff. It makes me really happy. At HDM Pod. Um, and yeah, just generally spread the good word. Spread the good her dark materials, his dark materials word. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Herd Art Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HDMPod. And you can also email us at herdartmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rich. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm fit, and when I'm not talking about my dear darling Baruch, you can find me talking about Paramore on my other podcast, Still Into You. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and find us on Twitter and Instagram at Still Into You Pod. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about how Asriel's just a bit of a prick, I'm making cute and magical arty things. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter and TikTok at Rach underscore makes, and over in my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. Huge thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. And we'll see you in two weeks' time, and don't forget keep telling stories and all will be well.
take care of yourselves. I forgot that this was going to be a hard episode. Yeah, sorry, we didn't know. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.